Hello there, you Awakening Wonders. Thanks for joining me for Stay Free with Russell Brand. You can watch me on a variety of platforms right now for we stream wildly and widely, widely and wildly. But our home is that sweet home of free speech itself, Rumble. I'm going to do a brilliant interview right now with Brett Weinstein. You know him. He's the evolutionary biologist and co-host of the Dark Horse podcast, which you can see on Rumble. The link's in the description there. Here I am with Brett Weinstein. Stay free. See it first on Rumble. Brett Weinstein's with me now, the evolutionary biologist, host of the Dark Horse podcast, and I would say free speech and freedom movement advocate. Thanks for joining me, Brett. I am thrilled to be here. It's very exciting to have you here. Have you been participating in ARC with Jordan Peterson et al.? I was at the ARC conference and I was at the, um, I don't even know what you would call it, but the uh, Jordan Peterson extravaganza at the O2 last night as well. I'd call it an extravaganza. Did you enjoy yourself? Oh, uh, I did enjoy myself. met lots of interesting people and it's always great to see Jordan on stage in his element. Yeah, of course it is. It's fascinating. We've been speaking and communicating recently, and I suppose there's a sense, an unavoidable sense, Brett, that we're in a very critical period. Do you know, like, it's not that long ago, it seems to me, that the apocalyptic preachers were peripheral and marginal figures derided and maligned at the time as crackpots and lunatics and conspiracy theorists. And indeed, they were the first to be picked off, cancelled, removed, even before the term cancelled existed. There were people that were eliminated from public discourse for a variety of reasons. But in retrospect, it looks like they were right about a good many things. You will see a series of global crises, an escalation of tensions, an increase in censorship, the legitimization of surveillance. And this is something that you've been talking about yourself for a while, I would say, from a more credible and certainly from an academic background. And that was germane during the pandemic, which was a time of great cleansing, censorship and control. Now that we're to a degree on the other side of it, how do you feel that the continuation of control will be exerted going forward? Now that if we're indeed not in the pandemic era, how is it going to be possible to legitimize the kind of authoritarianism that became normalized in that period? Well, there are a number of answers to that question. The most obvious of them has to do with uh, the World Health Organization and the um pair of uh, structural modifications that are currently moving through that body under the heading of pandemic preparedness. Yes. And for those who are not paying attention to this, these documents, I think they are designed to be so boring that you will not notice them. But what they contain is essentially the framework for a global tyranny that could be triggered by the next pandemic. But pandemic is defined so loosely that anything will do, including climate change, hmm. and that having defined such a pandemic, all of the signatory countries to the World Health Organization would effectively become subordinate. Our sovereignty would evaporate. And within the, um, the treaty modifications that are being proposed, there are 
uh, various requirements, for example, that if the World Health Organization were to decide that some uh, threat to public health was sufficiently severe, it could, for example, mandate things including vaccines and gene therapy. I kid you not. It's actually uh, it's named in these uh, these proposed modifications. And um, maybe the icing on the cake is that they have also anticipated the conversations that might break out if they attempted this and they have uh, carved out a a right to dictate to the signatory countries um, what sorts of censorship measures they might have to deploy. So I think the way to understand this is if you look at what happened during the, co- the COVID so-called pandemic, um, they attempted to deploy a narrative that we were simply supposed to swallow and it didn't work because effectively the force that was imposing this didn't really understand the danger of podcasters discussing these things outside of the normal channels. And so the narrative broke apart. And, you know, in the U.S. now we have uh, something like 3% of people are taking the latest boosters. That tells you how, how badly the narrative fared. But they have decided to uh, not lose to us again, and they're creating the architecture that w- would make it impossible to have the kinds of discussions that we did have during COVID, um, and that's frightening. Yes, when uh, the word globalism is used, I understand it as meaning the subordination of sovereignty in the manner that you describe, the anti-democratic process that seems to be enshrined in this treaty, the ability to just demand that nations impose preordained regulations, including, I feel like it's 5% of the national health budget. And yeah, and as you say, a curiously loose definition of the term or word pandemic itself. And and I was unaware, I missed what seems to be a crucial point, the ability to censor. I'm always struck by how this new form of tyranny uh, is masked in the livery of a kind of gentle bureaucracy of care. Recently, we received more YouTube restrictions. We'd already been uh, demonetized. Uh, uh, it seemed that the, the, you know, the UK government asked for our channel to be demonetized and uh, YouTube in, t- in particular uh, agreed. But that this has been escalated, actually, and now we can't uh, post. It seems like kind of niche to say, you know, you can't post external links and stuff like that. But really what this is, is censorship and control of information is being posed and imposed to uh, an an unprecedented level because I suppose of this unprecedented technology. I suppose how I came to look at the pandemic was as a period of revelation. It revealed how pre-existing power structures operate, how their interests converge and what their agenda looks like visible not only in the instances where it was carried out but in particular perhaps where it was resisted. And you are saying, Brett, that this WHO treaty is, in a sense, the legislation for the continuation of those measures after this initial attempt, just to a degree failed, but to a great degree succeeded. If by success you mean the profits of those pharma companies, if by success you mean the ability for uh, nations where you wouldn't have believed it possible to have successful lockdowns or the measure of control exerted, people giving up norms pretty much almost immediately and largely unquestioningly, the kind of good faith that was handed over. 
And it seems that to me since then that there's been the, the perhaps I don't know when it began anymore, Brett. Was it 2001? Was it 2008? But there's just this never ending sense of crisis, this escalating sense of fear and dread. And now the kind of casual advocacy for war on potentially three fronts is being normalized also. What what new complexity does this conflict bring to, in particular, to this matter, to this matter of centralizing control, closing down dissent? Do you see this as part of the same trajectory potentially? When you say this, are you talking about the WHO treaty, or are you talking about the conflict in the this Middle East? This conflict, the Middle East, yeah, and, oh. and and actually the sets of conflicts and the way they're being funded in bundles, spoken about in, and conflated in quite peculiar ways. You know, the most recent package of a hundred. Six billion. Some of it for Ukraine, some of it for uh, Israel and Palestine, some of it for China, Taiwan, all of it for the military industrial complex. Do you see this as being part of a kind of set of crises that are never ending and always have as their end point, regardless of the complexity within the crisis, the ability to assert control? Well, there are about 20 things in there, and I know I'm going to forget some of them, but uh, there are a number of things going on. One is there is this incessant push for uh, centralization and the violation of a sensible principle for governance um, that actually oddly comes out of Catholicism called subsidiarity. Now, it's interesting. Subsidiarity was a big theme at the ARC conference, and I know Jordan Peterson has talked about it occasionally. Three years ago, I thought it was the only person uh, in modern times who was even using the term, maybe that was wrong, but subsidiarity means everything should be governed at the lowest effective level that it can be governed, right? The who should not be dictating uh, your relationship to your doctor, for example, mm. or how your local park functions. Yeah. Um, but these excuses, these crises create the pretext for moving power upwards. So it's farther from our ability to exert any kind of countervailing force. And it really is, um, it's an excuse. You know, the, the pandemic masqueraded as a series of um, interventions that would only make sense in the context of a government that was absolutely obsessed with our safety. But we know that our governments are not obsessed with our safety. They put us in danger in many different ways, uh, you know, uh, every day of the week. Yeah. Um, so the the idea that they're suddenly so concerned that we're going to catch COVID and that we you know might end up in the hospital over it is preposterous in light of you know the food supply and and the poor quality of what it is that they're allowing us to eat and in fact um, you know the strange food pyramids that they've put together that have us eating exactly the wrong things total failure to recommend going out and uh, making vitamin D in the sun, right? They're not, they're not obsessed with our safety and well-being. But if they can claim a crisis in which they can invoke that, then they can do all sorts of things, um, you know, including censor us. They can take all sorts of freedoms. So with respect to the crisis in the Middle East, it, it is playing a number of roles here. One, maybe it's just pure luck. In fact, I think we have to assume it is, but it is distracting people from this, you know, guided missile headed directly for our sovereignty and our, um, our capacity to even uh, invoke uh, informed consent in the defense of our own bodies, right? We're not noticing that because we have this very dramatic crisis and we are right to be paying attention to that crisis. There's a tremendous hazard in it that 
this crisis, A, as bad as it is in the Middle East and as critical as what goes on in the Middle East is to the world, it also could escalate into a global crisis in which, you know, we might be very directly involved. So there's all sorts of reasons to be paying attention. But the fact that our attention span is divided between these crises. And as you point out, that there is a pattern, a never ending series of crises that almost looks like it was designed to keep us reacting out of fear, to keep our amygdala in charge and to sideline our conscious minds. I don't know, maybe that's just the nature of the modern world. But to the extent that we are stuck in this, you know, reactive fear based uh, response, we're not thinking very clearly. And we need to, because the only way out of this stuff is to think clearly. You know, what options are we not seeing, right? We're being told that everything involves two sides. You're going to pick which side you're on and we'll know whether you're a decent person based on which flag you're waving, right? That's not how any of this works. And um, it's a disaster for humanity. And I hope we will get to this um, later in the discussion. But it is a disaster for humanity to allow ourselves to be dragged back into a previous mode in which civilizations functioned and away from the superior mode that, yes, we had never completed, but we were well on the way to getting there. We had a really good prototype of an alternative system that was, in fact, fairer, safer, more liberating, more uh, uh, more prone to have us pursue meaning and compassion and all of the things that we value about ourselves. Those were on the table and they're slipping away from us as we're now very focused on um, conflicts that we've been told are are so utterly binary that, you know, we will we will out ourselves as immoral if we ask any questions at all. Do you mean that liberal democracy was succeeding, that there was a period sort of in the, are you saying the 20th century where it appeared like uh, there was meaningful progress and something has pivotally, has, there has been a pivotal and fundamental change. What is the period that you're talking about where the, things were on the table, to use your phrase? What, what has been lost and when did this happen? Well, um, people who follow me will know that I use a term called metaphorical truth. And what I mean by metaphorical truth, these are um, ideas that if you act as if they're true, they work. They work in your favor. That doesn't mean that they're perfectly literally true. So the story I would tell, which I think is at least metaphorically true, and I believe it's probably close to literally true also, is that the founding fathers of the United States accidentally solved a problem in trying to confederate the colonies. They created a system that um, it didn't perfectly solve the problem of people rigging the system in their own favor, but it solved a lot of the problem enough that the system actually founded the modern West. And it became contagious because when people saw how productive a system that did not rig itself in favor of particular constituencies was, they, of course, wanted in. So they mimicked it. Right now, sometimes they mimicked it without the particular constitutional provisions that really made it work. But as long as everybody was loosely on board with, you know, free speech, for example, mm -hmm. it didn't really matter whether it was inscribed in your constitution. So to make the story succinct. The West is essentially the agreement not to rig the world in favor of your people, to collaborate with people based on the fact that they bring something to the table that makes them worth collaborating with and to ignore their skin color and the shape of their noses and the particular traditions in their religious uh, places of worship. Right. You put those things aside and you collaborate because there's wealth to be produced by teaming up. 
Now, this system is better in virtually every way that it could be better, but it has one vulnerability, which is it's fragile. And the problem is that when it breaks down, we, we should know why it breaks down. It breaks down because the productivity runs out. The growth that it would produce runs out. And when that happens, it's like a game of musical chairs in which the music has stopped. And instead of being one chair short, you know, 30% of the chairs are missing and people start looking for who they can trust. And then all of that lineage stuff comes back. And my claim is that this is where we are in history. That all of the growth um, that we would normally be able to produce has run its course. There will be future bits of growth that we will get to by innovating new technologies, for example, but we never know when this is going to happen. Many games have been played to pretend that we have growth. Most of those games have run their course and the bills are coming due. And so as that, you know, looming, uh, unbreakable recession shows up on our radar, people default back into this lineage against lineage violence. And the problem, the really big problem is the world was like that. That was all of history until the West emerged. That was terrible. All of the greatest tragedies are born of this kind of thinking, but it was at least possible for humanity to move along this way probably isn't possible for us to do that. If we descend as a globe back into lineage against lineage violence, if that just comes to characterize everything with modern weaponry, I don't think humanity has much time left. So my claim, and you know, I don't want people to get this depressed sense. I wouldn't be doing the stuff I do if I didn't think that there was a way out. But if we don't find our way out, then the point is it's a short ride and we have to reinvigorate the West in order to escape that. May Arthur, that it seems to me that also masked within that ideology is that the consensus and teaming out that you described was predicated on a set of materialistic ideals. I don't just mean materialistic in terms of commodity. I mean materialistic in terms of rationalism and that which is measurable, that it was devoid of a spiritual dimension in so much as that collaboration was only based on productivity and even Marxist critiques, one of the areas where the, the, that analysis remains absolutely verifiably true is that, as you have said in your uh, own uh, um, description of this problem, is prone to boom-bust cycles. And if that becomes the raison d'etre and determining principle of an entire culture, when it inevitably falls into decline, it's exposed as if not nihilistic, then somehow, I don't know, undeniably... Entropic, and it feels to me, Brett, that part of the failure is that it, while the lineage traditions are, you know, plainly tribalized and conflict is sort of baked into them, I feel like that Schmittian dialectic of othering becomes germane here. That, like, in order for the in-group to be valuable, we have to have this other group, and that feels to be getting metastasized under some new terrible global. Uh, uh, dominion or domain rather now what I have for long felt is a challenge whilst I, I feel that you're entirely right about subsi subsidiarity subsidiarity mm -hmm. got to get into my own accent subsidiarity subsidiarity the thing that I like I like subsidiarity because I like the idea of power being as close to the individuals affected by it as possible the, uh, the, that we let go of the idea of progress being about p 
pace and efficiency of like there's if there's some immutable incontrovertible telos this thing that we're trying to get to when plainly that is baked into the models of commodity and built-in obsolescence and disposability and materialism and the, and individualism if all that matters is that which is measurable then then what in the end what i'm left with is the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain and it seems interesting to me that many spiritual doctrines are about caution when it comes to pleasure and uh, pain and suffering being the determinants, your own preferences becoming your default ideology. So, um, like, it was interesting you said at the beginning of that, that people sort of mimicked it without inscribing some of its constitutional principles, and it still worked anyway because it was an effective system. But where it has failed, it has failed monumentally, and it has failed it's sort of in terms of in historic terms, it's quite quickly in terms of empire. Like, it's like it's rattled itself into uh, annihilation indeed if what we're experiencing now is some sort of burgeoning end time pretty rapidly and i feel brett and i do and, and it's not i who gives a shit what i feel i'm asking you don't you feel that there's a requirement for a set of values and principles that go beyond materialism and individualism and somehow capture something arcane, divine, unitary, and sort of that respects the sanctity of the individual and the community? And when we rebuild out of this, it's not just built on, why don't we buddy up so as we can trade shit? Oh, you're 100% right about this. Good and was, yeah. As I'm saying, I'm thinking, this sounds good. Yeah, it sounds it pretty sounds good. All right. No, you're, you're, uh, you're hitting the nail right on the head. And so I would say the next thing to understand is that, first of all, evolution is an amazing process. It has produced all of the most incredible uh, features of humanity in addition to producing all of our worst features. So it is an amoral process. Mm. I'm not advocating for us to subordinate ourselves to it. In fact, um, we need to override it. Okay. Its objective is to have us get our genes as far into the future as we can. It would be wise of us to recognize that one of the, that, that's, that's some, that's a sentence you could say for any species, literally any species that has ever existed. The objective is to get genes that are contained by the organisms in that species as far into the future as possible. That is not an interesting goal. It is not something that any reasonable person should want to honor. You are a robot with that goal, but it's like being a, you know, a cyborg that has discovered you have a, a mission that you don't think is a good idea. So we need to override our program and say, actually, the capacity to um, to engage in rational evaluation, to establish values that are meaningful, to pursue objectives that are not fundamentally genetic, that's actually the better part of what we are. That's something that we cannot say other species are capable of. We are uniquely capable of it. And so the part of us that is special is a means to an end, a genetic end that is not interesting and not honorable. What we should do is we should turn the tables on evolution and we should say, how do we take the stuff that's actually really cool that we're uniquely capable of and provide an environment that fosters it, which does go directly to, I don't know if you want to call it a um, religious perspective or spiritual perspective or whatever it is. The way we live has to satisfy that need in us. That need is a fundamental need. And I won't 
say I don't know what it is that would satisfy that need and function in the long term to stabilize what I'm calling the West, this ability to collaborate. But I'm not arguing that the reason to do it is because it produces lots and lots of growth and um, because, you know, it's it's productive. I'm arguing that it should be done because of all of the auxiliary things that it allows to take place. We want a world in which warfare is less likely, in which violence is less likely, in which people are truly liberated to do meaningful things. And the best hope we have of doing that is putting aside our lineage differences and collaborating, which is what has happened in the West. Not perfectly. We've never completely gotten rid of racism, for example, but we have done better than any alternative. So that's why I'm arguing we should do it is actually to um, to foster the best characteristics that humans have and allow those things uh, to to spread. Within the limits of rationalism, it's difficult to continue to advocate only for rationalism when we've seen where rationalism has brought us. And it feels to a degree that that's what you're uh, attempting to do. And I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's claim or observation that the rationalist scientist in the laboratory observing a far off uh, nebulae posits that the rules that are applicable locally to the scientist would be applicable here using the rationalism that he himself claims is the result of a set of chaotic processes with no teleology or intention, no trace of divinity, uh, that the temporal is absolute and the spatial is absolute and are not not necessarily abstract, but potentially sort of localized customs that may not be absolute across the entirety of the universe. And what I... I feel, and then I would, wouldn't I, is that we've, we're buttressing against some precipice that's going to require a, a new resource, like a new, and in a sense, this is like a, a, a kind of, I suppose, the Christian idea, is it maybe that you can't get beyond here now unless there is some transformational, transcendent experience, unless the individual is willing to somehow, and, and it's not only in Christianity, it's sort of in Stoicism, certainly Marcus Aurelius and, and, and within Buddhism, the idea of death of self, the idea that there is a purpose that is great enough from your perspective in your period, your field of obvious expertise, evolutionary biology, where you can demonstrate the efficacy and the function of genes and how they behave and how they mutate and how they succeed and how they fail. Of course, I recognize that that is the sort of um, track that you will use as the dominant frequency for formulating it, your uh, opinions and perspectives. It would be mental if it wasn't. But I wonder if within that, it isn't it necessary for us to collectively invite the possibility that the reason for our the distinction as a species is you're going to have to get quite close to saying there is something sacred about human beings or important or special or different or something, and that there is something unitary between us, something shared between us. Uh, otherwise, it, I think it's easier to make the argument for domination. It's easier to say this set is better than that set and we should because which is the argument you know American hegemony like you know of provoking China into a South Seas war saying that Russia uh, caused this war themselves when there's an obvious argument that there was provocation yeah, like like in a way to deny to somehow say America should get out of these conflicts that we should be looking at uh, maximum democracy maximum subsidiarity in order to make that argument you have to somehow I don't know it's enough to do that on the basis of economics or that the West was a 
great success and look at these pillars and columns or look at Michelangelo or whatever. I think, don't you think we're going to have to reach deeper into somehow the mystery of consciousness, somehow the limitations of the, of the some inkling of the divine, some dormant near silent spark that perhaps may yet feed us something that you might find in the Tao or in Meister Eckhart. Oh, 100%. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and I never would have said anything else. Okay. The farther, I mean, look, my toolkit is a rational toolkit, but it is, I am not rationality first. I am human first. And the fact is all of the things you're pointing to are essential pieces of the package that got us to this moment in history. I wouldn't dismiss them. And, you know, I freely talk in terms of miracles. I refer to a God that I do not believe is a literal creature that would be recognizable to us. But I don't hesitate to use the metaphor because I think it's very powerful. Right. So I am comfortable with the idea that the proper way to bring everybody on board with the story that we can rationally deduce must be the way forward is not a rational presentation. Mm. It's not going to work. And for one thing, it's just going to strike everyone as too cold to be meaningful. Um, So, yes, the problem, though, is that when you say, okay, we have all of these traditions and they contain some sort of uh, metaphysics that is fundamentally about the divine. Right. There is a temptation to just simply retreat to these belief systems. And here's the problem. Those belief systems evolved. They are compendiums of wisdom. Much of that wisdom is decent and honorable. Some of it is not. If you look carefully at Bibles, you will often find, especially the farther back you go, the more dominated by lineage against lineage violence that they are, you will find perfectly immoral things spelled out very clearly in these texts. So we can't reactivate that part. You could act, you could make the argument that the purpose then should be to select the stuff that we should honor and, you know, uh, downregulate the stuff that's no good. But there's a more fundamental problem because those belief systems evolved. They are adapted to the environments in which they came about. We don't live in those environments. None of us do. Any ancient tradition is now placing those who adhere to it in a kind of limbo where our traditions are not a good match for the problems of modernity. So we have to, to the extent that there is a fundamental human need to think of these things in terms of something deeply spiritual, it can't be some version that we reboot from ancient history. It has to be, it can borrow from those things, but it's going to have to involve a good deal of new material And the fact is you can't, we can't even spell it out. Selection is going to have to refine it. You're shaking your head. I was just working out something. Like, although the accoutrements are doubtlessly cultural, and what else would they be? I mean, it would be odd if they weren't written in Hebrew or Aramaic or Arabic, given, you know, and that they didn't bear reference to shepherds and goat herds and the things that were sort of prevalent in that time. What interests me, I suppose, Brett, is what, you know, the sort of term uh, perennialism, 
and, and in particular where there seems to be an invitation to examine the relationship between that which is apparently external and that which is apparently internal. The, the fact that there are metaphors and, and, and nomenclature that you would anticipate being localized because the, to, to conjecture otherwise would be pointless and implausible. What I feel we're m perhaps moving towards together is that when this becomes, you know, when I consider evolution to be kind of linear, and I suppose one would because of it's generational, like, you know, it would be sort of splitting and diverse and invisible. And I'm sure there are all sorts of patterns that you're aware of that I can't, I can't even begin to conceive of. One of the things I'm noting is that customized and customary traditions that were necessarily local because of the way the world was then are now being not only applied to a different time and that's an interesting idea because well, you know because what does that mean culture has evolved things have moved forward have they regressed are the false markers of technology and medicine being used to sort of present an idea of progress that perhaps is not absolutely true on many of the problems we're experiencing now from diet to screen time the result of the fact that we're fundamentally similar to the pre-agricultural beast that we once were, certainly from a biological perspective, if you dumped me 10,000 years ago, mightn't I adapt? <laughs> um, and so, so what I'm saying is these ideas don't work. The, the areas where we find challenges, it seems, in one way, what you, I, I, I'm inviting us to consider it, is when you globalise it. And when you try and advocate for a kind of a unipolar position, when you say that, you know, the world should be Islamic or the world should be Judaic or the world should be Christian or the world should be secular, it becomes tense and taut and fraught. Or the world should be Zen or the world should be Tao. Isn't it that this position of subsidiarity has to be deployed? Isn't And in order to do that, could it not be argued that within all of these traditions that it could be argued, but certainly it should not be imposed, that there are very peculiar local customs and beliefs that seem somewhat out of step with our sort of what you're, um, I suppose, posing as a sort of a Western ideal for all its problems has many successes, which in the way is what we're criticising for those biblical traditions. They've got some great ideas and wisdom traditions, but they've also got throw someone off a tower or throw stones or all of that stuff that we point out, the violence and brutality and madness. What I'm saying is that Unless the real problem is an attempt to centralise authority to a degree that whatever it is, even if you're just into some weird Icelandic thing that you wouldn't recognise as a religion or new emergent progressive gender identity type thing, like unless we get to a point where it's like, what is it that's driving this tendency to centralise and coalesce power? Why is that happening? It's obviously creating conflict. And I sense in it, and I wonder if this maps onto your understanding of evolution, that they're trying to resist the opposite, that what the technology and communication miracle is doing is saying, hey, do you know what? Actually, we could organise things really differently now. You could have loads of independent media. You could have loads of independent dissenting voices. People could start opting out. You could live in England and just go, hey, we're not English anymore. We're going to belong to this subsidiarity. We're going to run our community like this. Yeah, we're in the middle of of Delaware and we're not paying taxes anymore. We're going to run our community like this sort of a, a, a like pan trans Amish revolution of everyone just opting out of like travelers and gypsies here in our country. We're not paying taxes. We're out. Like that could happen sort of en masse as people start to recognize that the central hegemonic forces are not beneficial. So even if there are things in religions as there are in the Western tradition that are uh, at odds with the, you know, the principles that one might um, encourage and present as defining, it wouldn't matter, would it? if there wasn't this sort of idea that we're all progressing together and if the 
general trajectory of that progression is one centralized set of interests that are able to dominate and that you can observe because you saw in the pandemic where all the money went. You know where it is. We know what strike that is. So I know I said a lot there, but I'd love to know what you think about it all. Yeah, well... I can't do it all, but, um, but I do think I get the central thread of what you're asking. And I absolutely agree with you. Um, if COVID didn't scare you about the idea of centralization, then you didn't understand what happened. So believe me, nobody's more terrified about the centralizing idea. It is not synonymous with what I'm saying about the West. And here's the point. We've got two kinds of people on Earth today. We've got those who are basically up for the idea that we should get along. Yeah. Right now, that's not a competition free view of the world. Mm. That is, hey, let's cooperate to compete. Let's do this without violence and let's not rig the world in favor of people who happen to carry our genes, which, frankly, we shouldn't care about at all. Um, so I'm not arguing that um, the West should impose itself on everybody. I'm arguing that we have a de facto problem, which is that some of us are on board. And this cuts through, I think, every nation. It cuts through every population that I'm aware of, that there are some people who are on board for the idea of, you know, uh, swords into plowshares and not using violence between lineages to settle stuff. And there are those who aren't, who see the world in terms of uh, my people need to dislodge other people in order to continue. And the world is going to have to settle on this superior way of being. And I mean superior by virtue of the fact that it takes all of the things that we would describe as honorable values and it augments them. That does not mean that people have to pick the same system, that we have to live under some globalized Western system. It means that we all have to embrace the basic idea of getting along. Yeah. Now, in a world where we had embraced the basic idea of getting along, many things are possible. And I agree with you about, you know, the beauty of subsidiarity. It does not fall into the trap of saying, hey, the answer to everything is decentralization because it isn't. Who's going to protect the oceans? The oceans are important. Somebody has to protect them. They're not inside of any nation. They can't be a no man's land where we, you know, strip them of their species. And that is what we're doing. So... The oceans are going to have to be governed by agreement from all of the parties that have an interest in the oceans continuing. And there is also, I will say, again, I'm a rational guy. That may be a defect, right? This might be better done through a spiritual portrayal. But nonetheless, I'm going to use the tools that I've got. Yeah. And the, the way to do this is um, to illustrate the the advantages that come to people by embracing these sometimes counterintuitive principles. And then the trick is to figure out how to stabilize a world so that the ebb and flow, as you point out, the natural tendency boom and bust does not trigger us to fall back into that violence. And this is the hard part because we don't have a trick. We have never found a trick to make growth uh, consistent. We've tried and it doesn't work. Sometimes we can stave off a disaster, but then when the disaster happens, it's even bigger. So I do think, and Heather and I outline this in our book, the Maya appear to suggest a mechanism by which such things might be done. I don't know how much exploring in Maya territory you've done. Any? None. None. Oh. Do you mean the Mayan folk? Yeah, the Mayan folk. The Mayan the, people. The Yucatan, right? Yeah. This is a culture that lasts. Pyramids, uh, calendars. Bingo. Those are the ones, right? This is a culture bit that- Bit of human sacrifice, I'm sensing. They weren't perfect. <laughs> but, you know, this is a culture that lasted 3,000 years. This is a culture that measured 
time in units of 400 years, the Bakhtun, right? 400 year periods. That's very long term thinking. This was a culture that had figured out mathematics to the level that they actually had a concept of zero, which the Greeks did not have. Okay. This was a sophisticated culture. They could tell you where in the sky Venus was going to be. Not an easy thing to predict. They were, they were farming intensively on very fragile soils and they were doing it with uh, chemical augmentation. They had a system of enriching the soil and this allowed this culture to go on for three millennia. Now, they also interestingly failed before Europeans arrived in the Americas. So we know it's not even as if we can say that this was an indefinitely long-lived culture because it wasn't, right? It had its limits, but 3,000 years is a pretty good run. Yeah. So what were they doing? Well, one thing they were doing, those temples that you know of, we think of them the same way we think of, you know, Egyptian pyramids. It's not what they were. These were like layers of an onion. Those temple complexes, and really I encourage you, you should see these things and you should go to some of them that are not well known. Some of them that are still somewhat embedded in the juggle and walk on these complexes. You know, you, you've got a temple that you see because it sticks out of the canopy, but it's on some giant platform with other structures. It's incredible. And they grow with time. That is to say, if, you know, the archaeologists have gone in and they find layer after layer, these things were built up over the courses of hundreds of years. What that implies is that this was a culture that had surplus. And what they were doing with the surplus was they were investing it in these public monuments, right? They were investing it also in a elaborate system of roads, right? Stone roads that went between these city states through the jungle. So, if you do that, if you commit yourself to taking surplus and putting it into public architecture, one thing you are not doing is allowing your population to grow in proportion to the amount of food available. And the problem with letting your population grow, which is naturally what evolution will do to you, if you have a surplus, your population will grow until you don't have a surplus. Okay, that's part of where the boom and bust comes from. If we've got a surplus, we're going to burn it and then we won't have one and then we got to find another. So if instead of allowing that to happen, if instead of allowing, you know, suppose you have 10 good agricultural years in a row because the weather's been hospitable, right? Well, then your population would tend to grow. And then as soon as you have 10 bad years in a row, you're going to have violence because you're not going to have enough food to go around. And when people don't have enough food to go around, they do the natural thing, which is they try to get it for themselves and their family. But if you invest in the years that are really good in the growth of this, you know, if you make a public investment of these giant structures, which creates work for people, it creates an impression that you are part of something very durable, much more durable than you are. Hmm. Then in the bad years, you don't have to build them up and nobody has to starve. So you can imagine from a Western perspective that if we were to take an enlightened view of the relationship between, you know, market forces and our well-being, and we were to optimize for something like our resistance to violence, that we could invest in something that was uh, publicly available, that enriched us as a people. And in bad times, we could invest less or nothing in it, and we would not have to resort to any of these other mechanisms, right? That does suggest that the Maya, this long-lived population, had a means for basically flattening out those boom and bust cycles, which would have been agricultural in their case, in a way that would have reduced violence, probably why they lasted 3,000 years. What so, are you proposing that the model was? 
Are you saying that it was somehow preservation or are you saying like sort of labor forces? Are you saying it's population control? What are you suggesting? That- yeah, I'm, I'm suggesting mean, we don't know. We actually know more about the Maya than any of the other New World cultures because they also, among other great accomplishments, had a written language. And they inscribed it in stone, which allows us to have seen it. Now, unfortunately, they didn't just inscribe it in stone. And the Spaniards burned all but one of the texts that was written uh, on uh, other materials. But It's a weird impulse. Yeah. Well, it's actually a very natural and... Still happening. Yeah, still happening. Going after other people's <laughs> monuments. But, uh, but I think what must have happened is that they had... Uh, a religious story in which yes. the gods undoubtedly wanted them to build up these temples and that those stories, you know, evolved. And the reason that they stuck and were elaborated was because they insulated these populations from the natural boom and bust violence cycles that they would otherwise have faced. Right. And that's that's all of our story. Right. All of our traditions are um, metaphorical wisdom. Sometimes that wisdom is immoral, right? It tells you to go after your enemies. It tells you to engage in perfectly horrifying behavior, to enslave other people, for example, right? We can't bring that stuff into the present. That stuff doesn't belong here. But these things were metaphorical um, portfolios of beliefs that if you followed them, you did well. And they have all, you know, the, the example I often use for metaphorical truth is um, in the Old Testament, you will find that the deity does not want you shitting in camp. He's disgusted by this and you don't want to piss him off. So you don't do it. Right. That is a metaphorical belief that gets you to behave as if you understand the germ theory of disease more than 2000 years before anybody knew what a germ was. Mm. Right. So that's powerful stuff. This is life saving beliefs encoded in a way that's simple and intuitive and easy to transmit to the next generation. That's what all of those traditions are. And I don't, I'm not trying to burst anybody's bubble about them. Stay free. See it first on Rumble. To watch the full interview with Brett Weinstein, click the red button and join our locals community. Become an awakened wonder. You get full access to the interview plus early access to all sorts of interviews like Alex Jones. Can you believe it? We're going to be talking to Alex Jones 90 minutes next Thursday. We do Bible readings. We read great texts. We meditate together and we talk about community solutions. We talk about ideas that are going to change the world together. Who's become an awakened wonder just lately? H. Garner 2000, Saliana 7, Zville 420, QL111. Iconic Bridge are all members of our community now. We've got Dave Martin, Dr. Dave Martin, a brave, outspoken and important voice in this community, will be on the show next week. Join us then, not for more of the same, but for more of the different. Until next time, if you can, stay free.